Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Um, <coughs> our featured guest tonight is uh, Karen Joy Fowler. And as I said earlier, you know, one of the great joys of this for me is, is getting people to, uh, to come along to these events in Mullaney that I admire or I'm interested in. I have a, a, a kind of particularly almost superstitious way that I go about choosing books to read. Uh, I never did studied English literature because I didn't want to be told what I had to read when because it seemed that books had, had, were a kind of sacred thing and they would always come to me at the time that I needed to have them to read. And that might happen in, uh, I might just go to a bookstore and a cover might sort of speak to me or something, so you've got to read me at the moment, or else a more common way would be that I, I would hear about a book once or twice or three times or something like that, and it would be a kind of a tipping point where a book would, book's name or an author's name would get heard enough that I would have to go and see what was going on. And I'd heard about this book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, oh, two or three times or something like that, and... Then Alan and Unwin suggested to me that uh, Karen was coming to the Brisbane Writers' Festival and that we might, um, we might be able to have her. And at that time, I didn't know that we were all completely beside ourselves had, been, had won the Penn Faulkner Award in the US, which is like the, uh, the, there's the Pulitzer and the Penn Faulkner. They're the two prizes that count, right? So it had won one of those, won one of those, and it had... Um, just been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize. I hadn't read any of her books at all, but I, the, the tipping point had, had been reached, and I, I, I said absolutely yes. And my intuition, in this case, paid off enormously because it's not just this book, which we're going to be talking about a lot. We're all completely beside ourselves, but there's the Jane Austen Book Club. There's the um, uh, Wit's End. There's her breakout novel, Sarah Canary, there's the uh, collection of short stories, which we'll also be talking to, called um, What I Didn't See. And the thing about these books is that every one of them has delivered extraordinary joys to me, and I hope that they will to you after hearing Karen Joy Fowler speak. So please put your hands together Thank to welcome to Karen to, to Maloney. Thank you. Very kind. Um, I'd like to just begin by asking you where this novel came from. I was um, on the Millennial New Year. I had taken my daughter back to the town that I grew up in, which she had never seen, and which is at quite some distance from where she grew up, um, which is Bloomington, Indiana, the, the town that I grew up in. My father worked at the university there. He uh, was an animal behaviorist. He ran rats through mazes. Um, I, it has become quite clear to me as I talk about this book that um, when I talk with enthusiasm about the nostalgic hit you get off the smell of rat cages, that is apparently just me. Uh, <laughs> there was an experiment done in the 1930s by a, a different psychologist who worked for a while at Indiana University, although um, not while we were there. Um, and I was talking to was my daughter. Kel was this Kellogg? Kellogg, yeah. Winthrop Kellogg, yes. I was nothing to do with the cornflakes. Nothing to do with the cornflakes, okay. as far as I know. Um, and I was talking to my daughter about that experiment, and she said, wow, that should be your next book. And uh, I do not have great ideas myself, but I know them when I hear them. And, <laughs> um, and it's also, you know, writers are always asked, where do you get your ideas? Where do you get your ideas? Again, usually a very hard question, but... 
from now on, my answer is just so simple. My daughter, and my daughter gives them to me. It's interesting because, as I mentioned, one of Karen's collections, Karen has four collections of short stories, but the most recent one is um, What I Didn't See. And the title story of that is set in, well, you tell, you say, you tell a little bit about What I Didn't See, because, interesting enough, the title of the book comes up in the middle of the story, and I'm curious to know whether it came first or second or later or what happened The there. title of the... The, of the, the title of the book, sorry. Of we this are all, book. Oh, yeah. We are all completely yeah. beside but, but ourselves. Please tell the audience a bit about this story, What I Didn't See. What I Didn't See is um, uh, actually a story based on, um, uh, again, on something real, uh, a very, very fictionalized version of something real, I read in the work of Donna Haraway in, um, I think, Primate Visions, she talks about uh, what struck me as just a very odd uh, expedition to, um, in, in Africa. And it, it was put together by the man who um, ran the Natural History Museum in New York. And apparently his plan, his plan according to Donna Haraway, was that he was going to protect the mountain gorillas by taking a safari out um, and having a woman kill one. And he felt that if a woman killed a mountain gorilla, all of the adventure and mystique of killing mountain gorillas would be gone. And uh, that no man would wish to bother to do something <laughs> anymore. So it was, it was just this very sort of bizarre plan. Um, the woman he took uh, was um, a woman named Mary Bradley, and she um, had a daughter who also went along. Five-year-old Alice went along on this same expedition. Um, Alice grew up to be a writer herself and wrote uh, under the name James Tiptree Jr. And um, for... Um, at least a decade, uh, published stories uh, and lived a reclusive life and people believed that a man was writing these stories. At a certain point she was outed as, as a woman and, um, and that's, it's all such a great story and it would take me so long to tell the whole thing to you. There's a wonderful book called The Double Life of Alice Sheldon in which you can read all about her and, uh, and her pen name and her career. But, um, but Alice Sheldon wrote a very, very powerful story called uh, The Women Men Don't See. And so my story is partly about her mother's expedition, partly a response to the story that the daughter wrote called um, The Women Men Don't See and partly just a bunch of stuff I made up. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, look, so many questions have come to mind while you've been saying that because, of course, you're very involved with the James Tiptree... The James Tiptree Junior Award, yeah, yes. Yeah, which is... Which, go on. 25 years ago, a friend of mine, Pat Murphy, and I um, decided that what the world really needed was another literary award. <laughs> uh, and we made up one that um, is given annually for speculative fiction, which means science fiction or fantasy in general, um, that expands or explores our understanding of gender. So things focused in, things that allow us to think about gender in, in new ways. Um, as luck would have it, 
25 years in, the most recent winner is um, Nikki Solway, uh, a Brisbane writer here. Who well, not even a Brisbane writer. She's, she's been living for the last 10 years down in Palmwoods, 20, oh, minu really? 20 minutes from here. Yeah. 20 minutes from here. Well, she's written an incredible book called Repetta, so please go and get it immediately. Just won the Tip Tree Award. Yeah. And uh, I think, in general, um, Australian writers have done very well in the tip tree. Here's the book, um, What I Didn't See, um, the, by Karen Joy Fowler and other stories. I very nearly didn't read this book because the first book story in the book is called The Pelican Bar, and I made the mistake of reading it before I went to sleep one night. And it starts off really innocently. I mean, it... it, 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 it does have a bit of language in it, but it does, it starts off, anyone who's been a parent of a teenager would get it. You know, for her birthday, Nora got a pink CD from the twins, a book about vampires from the grown, her grown-up sister, high school musical two from her grandma, and it goes on, or anything like that. And it turns out that Nora is completely unappreciative of all this, and she says, they're, they're, she's put a whole lot of stuff up on Facebook about how horrible it is, and you think it's going to be a story about teenagers and um, difficulty with parents, because that's Karen's kind of territory. But it goes into nightmarish places. I, it goes I do just... apologize. No, I mean, I didn't, I didn't read another story in this book until, until three weeks later, and then I thought I did it in the morning. I thought I'll read the <laughs> next one and see what, it, see what it is. And it's not like it goes... Um, when I say nightmarish, there's no ghouls. There's no uh, sort of no zombies appearing out of, the, out of the woodwork. It's just that things... Well, what is it about Pelican Bar? What's going on in that I story? I think, you know, um, tragically, uh, I made up very little in that story. That's the part that's really disturbing. Um, there's a set of schools that are uh, run by a company in Utah, um, but they are all based outside the U.S. so that um, the legal kinds of requirements that you might face for a school inside the U.S. don't, uh, don't come so if you've got a teenager play. you're having difficult with, you enroll so them in So you ship them off to this, this um, tough love kind of school, which, um, which and, and then as a parent, um, having done that, part of what you have agreed to is essentially no contact with your child um, over the period that the child is in this school. And so children who have been sent to these schools have, have emerged uh, a few years later, and they're... Um, their accounts of what happened to them and what was done to them in these schools are on the internet. And so, again, um, I wish I had made the story up, but I did not. Okay, well, it's, it's not science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I don't think it is anyway, but then I'm not going to say that because you might win an award for it. Um, <laughs> um, look, I think one of the reasons that your books are so successful uh, and I mean uh, successful as literary works, although you know maybe that buys into the financial aspect of it too. But is sadly it not, not really. Oh, but surely this one must be doing very well. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Anyway, we'll get onto that. Um, what, what, one of the things about them is that you're so um, acutely aware of status. You know, you put um, a, a child, a young girl, in a family and her sister is a chimpanzee, and the issue is not anything about her being a chimpanzee, it's whether the chimpanzee is getting loved more than her, really. It's about those 
those, that rivalry, that, that positioning oneself in a family is what you're sort of so much interested in. Is that, is that fair to say? I think that's uh, certainly one aspect of it. Um, I feel, uh, you know, uh, again, we talked earlier about the Kellogg experiment but, that the book is based on, but we didn't really say what it was, did we? So no, I probably no, should. Maybe, 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 maybe we should. Maybe it's time to do that. Yes, it, it is. Um, the experiment which took place in the 1930s involved um, the psychologist Winthrop Kellogg who bought, brought into the house uh, an infant chimpanzee at the same time that he and his wife had just had an, their infant son Donald and tried to raise the two of them in as similar a way as possible in order to sort of compare and contrast the developing abilities of the two infants. Um, so, you know, what that experiment ended um, fairly abruptly and fairly early, but it was followed over the next few decades by a number of other attempts to home raise chimpanzees in human environments and in human families. It's the only one that I know of where there was an infant child involved, but there were often children in the families, uh, older children, when the chimpanzee arrived. And, and I, you know, having decided I was going to write about the Kellogg experiment and about, about the child whom I have changed to a little girl, um, I began to read all of the books that people involved in the home-raised uh, chimp experiments had written, of which there are a great many. And, and the message that was repeatedly made in these books is how much like having a child in the house it was, that how, how little different difference there was. Um, and so when I set out to create my fictional family, I wanted it to function like a family. I wanted there to be the ordinary sibling jealousies and, and also the ordinary sibling intimacies. Mm. I, I should say that Karen and I discussed this before, before we came on stage to try, because um, I've been telling everyone that I meet, you've got to read this book, you've got to read this book. Don't read the back cover, don't let anybody tell you anything about it, just read it. Because, interestingly enough, the book withholds this information for the first 77 pages in my edition. I don't know where it is in other people's editions, but... And I, it, it, you do withhold it for a particular purpose, don't you? Yes, I think if, if you read the book, and I hope you will, um, it will be very clear that I did not intend you to know that the sister is a chimpanzee until about a third of the way into the book. Having now told you that, I am trusting that you will forget we had this conversation um, <laughs> as soon as you leave tonight. Um, no, it didn't, it didn't spoil the book for me because I knew I happened to know, the, uh, the, the conversation I'd heard of Karen talking on the radio, it had come out and it didn't worry me that I knew this, but I could see that it would be nice not to. But, but the, reason that, the reason that it would be nice not to is that for Rose, the girl, Fern, her sister, is her sister. She's not a pet. Yes, no? and that is the reason that I withhold the information as long as I do. I felt that if readers knew instantly that we were talking about a family that had a human child and a chimpanzee child, that, um, that they would not uh, process it the way I wanted it processed, which is two children. That, that the minute I tell you that she's a chimpanzee, that Fern is a chimpanzee, you, you have a different 
picture of her. You, you can no longer um, feel about her the way I want you to feel about her, so I want you to have that, that 77 pages in which you're feeling about her the way I want you to um, before I tell you uh, something that may or may not change mm. the way you feel. Because Rose is the narrator, really your, your experience of Fern is her experience and she sees her as being her sister. As she, a sister so, yes. so for me it was never a question really. I don't think it affects the, the book because it's about the separation that happens and, and, how, and, and how she deals with that and how the family deals with it and everything. There's, a, there's an extraordinary line early on in the book which seems to have an enormous amount of resonance for me which is that um, uh, one of the, she, she says, um, in retrospect, the lesson seemed to be that what you accomplish will never matter so much as where you fail. And it... it a grim little philosophy. It is. It just, it, it's, so, it's so hurtful in some ways. But it, it's what Claire was talking about before, isn't it? It's this thing is that we're always, we're always, on, we're always on guard, aren't we? We're always, we're always being tested. Uh, this is not entirely pertinent, I guess, but it's what I was thinking, what I often think and what I was thinking during that part of the conversation. The problem with, with environmental activism is that you have to win over and over and over again. And if you lose once, um, things are gone. Th things that you can never get back disappear. So it's such an unfair playing field. It's such an unfair enterprise. And somebody was, t uh, was um, I can't now remember exactly the context, but was um, talking about the environmental movement in the US and saying, well, you know, we delayed by many years something that has now happened. And I thought, well, am I really supposed to be happy about that? Um, I wanted to delay it forever. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what do you think got into people that they decided to do this, that they decided to bring chimpanzees into families? I mean, were they, were they, were they just completely, you know, had they had too much to drink the night before? I mean, what, I mean, what was going on? Well, you know, different people had different reasons. Um, the, uh, most of them were involved in language studies. Most of them were getting PhDs or um, uh, do, doing work at the universities. And, and there was a great issue over what, uh, what kind of communication skills a chimp might have if they had the sort of enriched upbringing of a child. You know, if they were exposed to human language in the way a child is just immersed in it, what might they be capable of? Um, and, but there is this peculiar sidebar of uh, one of the um, most prominent of the psychologists, and, and I must say, clearly not a nice man, was uh, Dr. Lemon at the Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, and he um, was a psychologist at the university, but he appears to have also seen patients for various psychological problems or issues. And um, as part of his therapy, he gave people chimps. So in this particular little town of um, Norman, Oklahoma, it, you sometimes get the impression that you could hardly go down the aisles of the supermarket without running into people with chimps in their carts. Um, I mean, it seems to me that there must be, I, 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 I grew up in the, I'm born 1951, so I was kind of in my 
twenties, in the seventies, and and as was I, people were doing things that. Um, that I that think we should just leave it there. People were doing <laughs> things <laughs> like like adopting chimpanzees. Things like it was like there was no awareness of consequences. That life kind of actually went on, and that you might you might still be 50 years later dealing with whatever the problem was that you had inherited by the making of this decision. There's also, um, more so now than then, but uh, you know, qu quite a crisis over the bushmeat trade. And so you do have all of these orphan chimpanzees um, in, in Africa and no good place to put them, no good thing to do with them in the book. Um, that's Fern's background, that she is orphaned and there's kind of no other place for her to go. So in some ways it's a, it's a kind of rescue mission. Well, it's intended to be a rescue mission. Okay, um, yeah. In the 1970s, which is when the experiment in my book takes place, I truly do believe that people did not understand how dangerous uh, chimps would grow to be, that they they did not understand that the chimp would, at some point, have to leave the family, uh, and that no good solution to that problem would be available. Yeah. Um, I do think that they thought they were making a lifelong commitment, and that the chimp would just live with them as long as the chimp lived as a member of the family. In no case did that turn out to be possible. Okay. Um, one of the interesting things about the way that you tell this story, though, is that um, Rose, the narrator, is, is kind of quite chatty with the reader. You're, you're, it's almost like you're kind of, she's sitting beside the reader the whole time, giving There's a, a little kind of correct address. I'm a very bossy writer, so yes, I like to, I like to tell readers, this is now. This is the part you should pay attention to. Well, you do now. That. Your mind can wander a little bit. This is not so important. <laughs> And I, 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 don't, I don't know how you get away with that. I don't know how I get away with it either. <laughs> because, I mean, other people try it and it comes across as being affected or away. But it's also, there's a, a terrible danger when the author kind of steps in like that because there is a kind of contract between the reader and the, the author where there's a kind of suspension of disbelief. But if the author comes in and starts talking to you, that suspension of disbelief is interfered with. And yet you seem to manage this. I just um, truly have never really cared about the contract with the reader. I don't recall signing it. Um, could, I, could I talk you into reading a passage from this book? I think it would be really nice to hear, hear. Those who know me now will be surprised to learn I was a great talker as a child. We have a home movie taken when I was two years old, the old-fashioned kind with no soundtrack, and by now the colors have bled out, a white sky, my red sneakers, a ghostly pink, but you can still see how much I used to talk. I'm doing a bit of landscaping, picking up one stone at a time from our gravel driveway, carrying it to a large tin wash tub, dropping it in, and going back for the next. I'm working hard, but showily. I widen my eyes like a silent film star. I hold up a clear piece of quartz to be admired, put it in my mouth, stuff it into one cheek. My mother appears and removes it. She steps back then out of the frame, but I'm speaking emphatically now. You can see this in my gestures. And she returns, drops the stone into the tub. The whole thing lasts about five minutes, and I never stop talking. A few years later, Mom read us that old fairy tale in which one sister, the older, speaks in toads and snakes, 
and the other, the younger, in flowers and jewels. And this is the image it conjured for me, this scene from this movie, where my mother puts her hand into my mouth and pulls out a diamond. I was toe-headed back then, prettier as a child than I've turned out and dolled up for the camera. My flyaway bangs are pasted down with water and held on one side by a rhinestone barrette shaped like a bow. Whenever I turn my head, the barrette blinks in the sunlight. My little hand sweeps over my tub of rocks. All this I could be saying, all this will be yours someday. Or something else entirely. The point of the movie isn't the words themselves. What my parents valued was their extravagant abundance, their inexhaustible flow. Still, there were occasions on which I had to be stopped. When you think of two things to say, pick your favorite and only say that, my mother suggested once, as a tip to polite social behavior. And the, the rule was later modified to one in three. <laughs> my father would come to my bedroom door each night to wish me happy dreams, and I would speak without taking a breath, trying desperately to keep him in my room with only my voice. I would see his hand on the doorknob, the door beginning to swing shut. I have something to say, I'd tell him, and the door would stop midway. Start in the middle then, he'd answer. <laughs> a shadow with the hall light behind him and tired in the evenings the way grown-ups are. The light would reflect in my bedroom window like a star you could wish on. Skip the beginning, start in the middle. Thank you. <laughs> Which is, which is where you do start with the book, isn't it? And, yes. And, and then it kind of goes forward and back from, from there. And um, I mean, I think that if people want to know what your opinion about animal testing is, they should probably read the novel because kind of it's all in there. And, but I would still like to ask you, if I may, to talk about that. Is that possible, you know, to talk about, to talk about those, those Absolutely. aspects? Absolutely. Um, I... I care very deeply about the way that we treat our fellow creatures. And it's not just animal testing, it's the food industry and um, all of the ways in which we are careless with the creatures that we share the earth with. Uh, as part of researching the book, um, I, I got caught up in many things that are not really part of the book so much, but um, uh, you know, beginning with chimpanzees and moving outward in ever-widening circles, I started looking at what the current research suggested on animal cognition in general. And it is astonishing. It's an astonishing field. It's moving very, very quickly. And the things that we are discovering are, are startling and wonderful. Uh, if one thing seems absolutely clear now, it's that we have underestimated the capabilities and the uh, emotional complexity of our fellow creatures at every possible turn. Except with dogs, of course, you know. <laughs> well, um, we've gotten more sentimental about our dogs, I guess, and, and, and more attached to them. When I grew up, um, you know, it was not uncommon for a dog also to a family dog to simply be tied in the yard for hours and days at a time. In the acknowledgements at the end of, of We're All Completely Beside Ourselves, you mention um, having written yourself into a corner 
I just was very curious about this corner that you'd written yourself into, and where, you know, because I could see there was a lot of corners one could write <laughs> oneself into in a book like that. I was just interested to know what it was and how you got out of it. I, um, the Kellogg experiment that the book is based on ended at about 19 months. In my book, the experiment goes on for about five years. I wanted it, I, I wanted my protagonist to have some memories of the experiment, to have some memories of her sister. And it seemed to me that um, five years was the outer limit um, at which I could begin to imagine that happening. But I also knew that I would need some information about the parts of the experiment that took place in a, the period that she wouldn't remember when she was considerably younger. So I knew I was going to need a way to bring that information into the book. And I figured that um, that, that would come from her mother. Um, and the mechanism I chose to convey this was uh, to decide that her mother had kept journals. I was picturing them as sort of scientific field notes that she would have kept during the early years of this experiment and that these journals would still exist. So there I am. I've, I've solved this one problem by imagining that there will be these journals, but I have created for myself another problem in that I don't know and cannot make myself imagine what these journals would actually look like, what these field notes. I'm not a scientist myself. Um, it seems to require a sort of level of detail and a, uh, an attention to certain issues that I might not have the information for. Um, so what I did um, was uh, have her mother give her the journals but then have the journals immediately lost. And every time I think to myself, well, I'm gonna have to write those journals at some point, I think of another way to send them far, far away. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, we've, we're now deep into the book. They were in a suitcase, the suitcase has been lost, the airlines can't find the suitcase, a different suitcase comes to the house instead. Um, much plot involves, uh, um, flows from, my inability to write the actual notebooks. Um, and so I was talking to some friends about this problem and asking if they, had, if they had any models of anything I could look at that might help me envision what these books would be. And they said, you know, you're thinking about it all wrong. They don't have to be field notes. They can be baby books. They can be baby books for the two girls. And I thought, oh, I've done baby books. I can do that, okay. that's." And, and as luck would have it, in the very next <coughs> chapter, the notebooks were found. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and one more question there, um, which is just that the themes, because you've got quite a lot of them that you, that they kind of repeat in your writing. I've got a list of some of them here. I mean, other than chimpanzees, there's the Civil War, Lincoln, misunderstood children of either gender, harassed mothers, children raised in the wild, but mothers are, are, are really kind of the, the key to it all, aren't they? Mothers are, are, are the... Are How interesting that you think so. I, I'm delighted, because I thought that I wrote about nothing but my father. I thought it was all fathers, all the time, and I've always felt that I gave my mother very short shrift. Uh, I could not be more pleased to hear otherwise. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, other people might, but now that's for me, it seems to me, that, that mothers, this whole thing about... The intimacy of family, that family unit, is, is the kind of thing that, that 
seems to um, drive a lot of your fiction. It is. I think um, that... Uh, um I can't remember, I'm trying to remember what my state of mind writing the Jane Austen book club was, but I think already, already, um, when I was writing the Jane Austen book club, I had lost interest in um, couples and romances and, and that my obsession had become siblings and mm. that I am, um, and that I, I seem to be stuck there yeah. right now. Siblings are, are you know, so unique in our lives because they have known us for so long and because I think that it, you can argue that they see us a lot more clearly than our parents see us. Our parents are too complicit in whatever we turn out to be and um, share too much guilt for, uh, wish very much to see the best of us because uh, then they can see the best of themselves as well. But our siblings have no such compunction. It's a, a very interesting insight, and it kind of leads into that final story in the book, What I Didn't See, which is about kind of the Pied Piper of Hamelin thing, that notion of, of, of happy endings. Yes. Uh, the, you know, we were talking about categorizing my work, and the story you're talking about is called King Rat, and it, it was my attempt to write creative nonfiction, um, at a certain point in my career, I began to hear the term creative nonfiction and was puzzled by it because I did not see how you could write nonfiction that wasn't creative. But, um, but somebody explained to me that it, was, that it was nonfiction, but that it used some of the tools and strategies of fiction. And I thought, well, I'll, tr I'll see if I can do that. Let me try. And so the story of King Rat is actually... Um, as well as I remember, entirely autobiographical and entirely true, every word of it. it I thought I was writing an essay, and, um, and the next thing I knew, it had been picked up for uh, best of the year fantasy collection. <laughs> um. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's a beautiful story and, and acts as a, a wonderful coda for that particular collection of short stories and, and, and for a way of, of looking as a writer, which I think is this, this idea that of, of wanting to offer, wanting, wanting to offer solace or something in, yes. in your writing. Yes, well I also have a guilty complex about it because I make a promise at the end of that story that we are all completely beside ourselves, breaks completely and utterly. I promise that I'm never gonna write a certain kind of story again and so the, next the very next thing I do, uh, you know, <laughs> at novel length. Um, but perhaps, uh, perhaps someday there will be confusion about what order I did them in, and it will all look much more uh, tasteful. So look, maybe we could open the, the, the open the, it up to the floor and get some questions. I My, would love it. Michael's got a question here. Um, Karen, um, what's striking me about this book, most of all? is your ability to get inside the psychology of a three to five-year-old child um, and to be able to tell the story um, by her, but, but as a narrative, as an adult narrative, it's quite, uh, quite remarkable. And I, I don't know how many, I haven't read your other books, but I just wonder, um, is this the first time you've, 
you've taken this, this role of a child and got inside her head, the humour of a child, the simple one-liners, etc. Or is this, uh, have you done this before? Uh, thank you very much, first of all. Um, and I have to stop and think. The, the story King Rat that we were just talking about is, um, is again, an autobiographical essay, but about me as a, as a small child. Um, I am quite surrounded by grandsons, so if I ever forgot what a three-year-old is like, I have been repeatedly reminded every two years I have another three-year-old grandson. Um, uh, but um, doing, doing Ro telling Rosemary's story and uh, even more specifically trying to think like Rosemary and create Rosemary's voice was really, for me, one of the great joys of writing the book and um, kept me going when I might otherwise have despaired. But I, I liked her quite a lot and I'm glad that you liked the father. I, I thought that I am very sympathetic to him. I, um, my feeling about him is that he made some Definitely, he made some wrong moves, but that they that he was a well-intentioned man, that he has certainly paid a heavy price for the mistakes that he made, um, and that the, that the, everyone in the family was well-intentioned. That it's a it's a story about a family where things have gone terribly wrong, but not through lack of love, not you know, not not through cruelty, not through even carelessness, um, and yet you know, um, I have read multiple reviews and talked to multiple readers who just thought that the father was villainous, um, horrific, and I can't argue with, um, I mean, readers um, uh, have the data and are as competent as I am at deciding what's, what's happening in the book, but it, it has surprised me a little bit how much some people have disliked the father. Chris and I are in the same book club, and we read your book. And this is a great uh, follow-up, I think, because there was such heated um, debate, argument even, about this brother and his actions. And I mean, Greenpeace got a very bad um, press. <laughs> um, so, and of course, I'm a great supporter of Greenpeace and felt, you know, very sympathetic to him and the passion of how he felt about injustice. So I just wondered if you had in mind to create a situation where people would have that debate about his actions. Um, I'm trying to think. I I am tremendously sympathetic to him uh, I, and, and to the animal rights activists in general, in spite of the fact that they do sometimes um, do things that I think are misguided. Uh, you know, the, in a situation where you feel passionately and you see cruelty and you see things going on on that scale, um, 
the, you know, it's hard to know how to stop it or, or what you can possibly do or, um, or to tell yourself, well, uh, I'll do this much, but no more. Um, I think, it, and I'm not just talking about animal rights, uh, anti-war, um, all of the causes that matter to me. If, if they, you know, the, the stakes seem so high that almost any action seems um, justifiable. And yet, um, if you think that way, then you begin to um, participate in things that are not justifiable. And so it's all very complicated and, um, and my feelings are all very mixed, but I, I understand people who feel compelled to do something extreme in the face of something that they feel is an extreme injustice. I think, you know, arguably the brother is the one who pays the highest price in the family, everybody else manages to cobble together some something, uh, and he's really the one who's lost. Do you like reading, writing novels more than short stories? Is there a preference there? I like writing short stories more than novels. Do you want to um, expand <laughs> upon that? Well, it's it's quite obvious, isn't it? They're shorter. <laughs> <laughs> they don't take nearly so long. Um, when I wrote my first novel, Sarah Canary, I did it, uh, I was very crabby about the whole thing. I had, I had signed a contract in exchange for uh, getting a collection of my short stories published. Uh, as a quid, quid pro quo, I had said that if Bantam would publish my short stories, I would write a novel. So, um, so they did that, and then it fell to me to honor my part of the bargain, but I didn't, didn't start writing a novel because I really wanted to write a novel. I started it because I had said I would. Um, and uh, it took me a while to begin to enjoy it. In the end, I did see that there are advantages to novel writing. I, I got much more deeply attached to my characters than mm. I do in short stories because I spent so much more time with them. I really expected, you know, the day I wrote the end on the manuscript would be a popping the champagne, kind of dancing in my socks sort of day. Um, and instead I was, I was quite bereft, I thought, you know, I, I will never see these people again. Um, it seemed very, very sad. But, um, but uh, a short story, I, I just feel so much more competent. I, a short story, I can keep the whole of it in my head, and I can see how it's structured, and um, I can see if I'm accomplishing what I hope to accomplish. And this puts me in a sort of wonderfully invulnerable uh, position when people read them, that if somebody doesn't like my short stories, I don't feel that I've done a bad job. I feel, you know, I just don't write the kind of short stories that person likes. Um, I don't have that invulnerability with the novels. I can't see the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's too big to grasp, and I don't have a sense that I'm accomplishing what I wish to accomplish. And when somebody doesn't like one of my novels, I think, well, probably because it's not very good. That's my guess. Um. I'm just interested in your comment about the siblings, which I think is really interesting how... Um yeah, we're more likely to kind of really scrutinise, I guess, or, you know, check each other out. And then you write a story about um, 
a sibling with a monkey, as a, with a chimpanzee as a sibling. And, and I mean, I want to ask about your siblings, really, but maybe <laughs> that is digging too deep. But it's, it's kind of like, well, well, what is all that about then? What is all that about? Such a good question. Um, I, um, I, I will tell you that I have an older brother. He's lovely. He could not bear less resemblance to the brother in my book. Nothing makes him angry. Um, but he is in many, he is older than me uh, by about four years, and he is in many ways the repository of my memory because I have so many things wrong, it turns out. I will be telling a story, and he will say, well, you know, it wasn't summer. It was Christmas time. Um, we weren't still in Indiana. We had moved to California, and... Happened to me, not you. Uh, <laughs> so I'm lucky to have him. Uh. And on, on that note, I, I would like you please to, to say how lucky we have been to have Karen Joy Fowley here visiting us in Milano. Thank you.